Welcome to the inaugural episode of Thompson Hines Environmental Laws Podcast. This is environmental law, so of course we needed a new acronym. LAWS stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And that's exactly what we'll be talking about. In these podcast episodes, we'll cover current topics in environmental health and safety laws in the United States from the perspective of Thompson Hine attorneys, the regulated community, regulators, and the occasional special guests. We know you're busy, so our goal in each episode is to provide practical and efficient insight to you on a timely EHS topic. My name is Joel Eagle, and I'm a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Devin Berry, who's also a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group in Cleveland, Ohio. Devin counsels a variety of large manufacturing companies throughout the United States on environmental compliance issues and has been assisting clients as they've attempted to maintain compliance during the ongoing pandemic, despite plant closures, furloughed employees, and regulatory uncertainty. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joel. I appreciate it. And these are certainly some weird times we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Devin, as you know, we'd hope to record this podcast earlier this summer, but along with the rest of the world, uh, we've thrown ideal out the window and are just doing our best. Um, the theme of being nimble as the pandemic continues is actually a, a good segue today um, for our topic, given the ongoing pandemic and the recent resurgence of cases throughout the U.S. We're going to talk about some compliance lessons that Devin and his clients have learned through the initial phase of the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic and how these lessons can help to prepare the regulated community for potential future closures and restrictions. So with that, let's get started. Devin, what are some of the problems or regulatory compliance difficulties you've seen companies facing during the pandemic and the pandemic-related restrictions? Sure. Well, I mean, and it's it's been a wide variety of problems, and it's really quite eye-opening when you are looking into these issues, how a relatively small inquiry from a client can completely balloon up to be a much bigger issue that impacts compliance at all levels or even the operations themselves. So I, I thought of a couple of examples that I could talk about for this podcast. And the, f the first one is, is, is training. I mean, it seems kind of odd because it's a fairly low-hanging fruit from a compliance perspective, but you know, there's training required under a lot of regulatory statutes, um, whether that be training for hazardous waste management or Clean Air Act um, compliance monitoring, where you're evaluating opacity out of a, out of a stack. And of course, if you can't meet your training requirements, which are often on a regular or annual or biannual basis, um, that in itself is non-compliance. But when you also add on top of that, if you have your uh, you have your employees that are missing training, and then they're doing, for instance, an opacity evaluation under the Clean Air Act, then you are facing a situation where not only are you not meeting your training requirements, but potentially a regulator could say that you're not meeting your emission limits in your particular permit because the person that looked at the or evaluated compliance wasn't trained to be able to do so. So those are some reoccurring issues that we've worked through and we've found some good solutions for, but it's been a common issue for a lot of manufacturing facilities. And I think at a higher level, I got a second example would be just the interconnectedness of a lot of facilities, either we, we have a multi-facility campus or perhaps you have interrelated processes within an organization where perhaps you're not having to recognize hazardous waste because it's included in an in-process system or 
because you're having to close down your facility because of restrictions in your particular state, you're having to implement additional security measures or provide notifications to regulatory agencies. And I guess the last one that I've often seen is where you've got a process that's dependent up perhaps on another process where you may have one where perhaps production is shifted to another facility, uh, but certain compliance assumptions say, or, or um, equipment, for instance, like a wastewater treatment plant is no longer being utilized by one of the operations, but is utilized by the other. So that creates compliance concerns and uh, some difficulties as well. So those are some of the issues that I've seen. I, I, like I said, I could keep going on on that, that issue, but I think it at least gives you a, a flavor of, of what's out there. Thanks. I mean, it's funny because our job is to solve problems and encounter new things all the time. But um, this is the pandemic is certainly creating issues that nobody ever anticipated before. And I can see how one issue can really snowball um, over time. Um, have these situations led to any enforcement actions that you've seen? Or is there a risk of additional enforcement actions down the road? Well, the good news is I have not seen an enforcement action arise out of these situations. I, I think we've encountered some difficult uh, conversations, but they haven't actually resulted in enforcement. And I think in large part, that's because um, US EPA and a lot of states actually issued policies that do provide enforcement discretion, uh, basically saying that they're not gonna be pursuing enforcement during these restrictions that we're, that we're dealing with right now, if non-compliance results out of it to a certain degree. And that important part at the end is often something that you don't see in the news where you read a headline that says EPA is no longer enforcing the law and that, that's just not the case. These discretion pro uh, policies are, are very narrow, they're temporary, and they're really to address more of the low hanging fruit against things like the training aspect and another aspect, not things that are gonna result in some kind of direct impact to the environment or increase emissions increased discharges to waterways, et cetera. So, you know, many of the policies, because they are pretty narrow in application, a lot of companies are still doing, uh, applying a conservative approach, and that's certainly something we recommend, um, because you don't know if once the policy expires, are you exposing yourself because of non-compliance that might persist after a restriction is lifted? Um, and I think there's two other aspects that really are in favor of that conservative approach. One being, you know, as I said, the feds have passed this policy and a lot of the states have their own policies, but not all states do. So the federal policy is actually being challenged by some of the states saying you should not have a discretion policy as well as business groups. So even where a company in those states may feel okay with respect to their position on the federal level, there's still some exposure there um, either from a citizens group or their own state. And the last piece is you know, what I had mentioned before is these are temporary. So even US EPA's policy, they, they just recently announced um, in August of this year, that policy will expire and states are kind of following suit right now or state agencies rather. And so it's, it's, it's not a situation where you've got this increase in COVID-19 cases in the majority of states I think it's reasonable to expect you're gonna have more restrictions. Uh, either that, either they're gonna be legally mandated or businesses are just gonna choose because of the current environment not to create that risk. And if the policies are removed, then that uh, those good faith efforts and some degree of comfort that you're not gonna receive an enforcement action are potentially gonna go away. 
in the latter half of this year. So uh, that, right. those are the primary, I think, concerns right now on the enforcement side. Well, I, I know we could go on about this forever. Uh, I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole, but you know, one thing that I was thinking about with the end of the U.S. EPA policy was that that decision to end the policy was probably made when the cases started to go down. So as the cases are going up, uh, I think it's important for us to see where U.S. EPA goes with this, and uh, if in a really bad situation, restrictions, um, state level restrictions, end up happening again. You know, EPA may have to rethink putting the policy back in place. Um, every day is something new, right? I think that's right. All right. So you've covered what's been happening over the last several months. Do you have any recommendations for in-house counsel or EHS managers that are attempting to ensure compliance through the next several months or year? Well, yeah, but I guess I should give the the lawyer disclaimer that we're in, you know, completely uncharted waters. So right now we're trying to map out a course here um, to help to mitigate those potential exposures that I that I mentioned. Um, and so what I've generally been advising is kind of a three step approach or, or really just three considerations more than anything else. And some of these might be more practical than anything else, but I think they, they merit consideration by any in-house counsel or EHS department. Um, you know, the, the first one is technology adoption, and, and I'll, I'll go through these a little bit more, but certainly technology is going to be a key aspect to dealing with additional restrictions, whether it be this year, next year, or in, or, or in the future. Um, you know, the second one would be developing a COVID-19 compliance contingency plan, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means. And I think the third aspect is that companies need to be evaluating their current enforcement defense strategies in the event they do, in fact, come into the unfortunate circumstance where they do have a enforcement action or an, uh, a non-compliant situation. So uh, just to walk into that first one on the technology adoption, this falls into that category of, duh, you should absolutely be adopting uh, technology. Um, but although it seems obvious, it's frankly been a little eye-opening for me to see that a lot of companies are still operating on legacy systems and perhaps haven't fully adopted current technologies in all respects. And that has created some problems for these companies as they now have employees that might be furloughed in a different location, can't be accessed. You know, a big percentage of their workforce is no longer on site. And it really emphasizes the need um, to have a more electronic-based system. So, you know, a couple examples of where I see there's some value to invest in. And, and I, I will say, you know, I, I hear it every day that, you know, times are tough, business is down, what do we invest in or what, what rather, what can we cut from a cost perspective? And I look at technology as an area that you certainly don't want to be cutting, but you should be investing in more now. So the way I see that companies can do that is, one is, you know, developing more standardized forms. And that's, that, again, that's very low hanging fruit to, for purposes of inspections and regulatory reporting and record keeping requirements, making sure that those facilities and those people that are spread all over are actually using something that's consistent, that's not gonna lead to inconsistencies, which often lead to non-compliance. And the second one I think is uh, probably the most important, and that's having a platform that's easily accessible by everyone. And this is, I see this both on the regulated side and the regulator side, and that 
you've got these documents, great. But then someone's working from home and all of a sudden, because of security protocols, they can't access the documents. And obviously that creates a huge issue. Security is in fact a legitimate concern, but certainly there's encryption and stuff that companies can be looking at now to kind of get around that. And now is the right time to be investing and in making sure that uh, kind of backbone system exists. Um, the other categories are, you know, exploring online training. Again, I mentioned the training issues with in-person uh, training, and it's not available, I think, for every uh, training requirement, but it's something to be looking at now. And the fourth one would be exploring what kind of technologies are out there, hardware and software, for purposes of inspections and audits. I mean, those proactive measures are some of the things that were most significantly impacted for a lot of our clients. And having the audit software, for instance, iPads, where you could be doing real-time inspections with your EHS manager that might be located at home, all of those are worthwhile investments that I think are something that folks should consider now while they can. Yeah, I mean, finding the money to do these things is, of course, a challenge, but where you can do that, it's uh, especially when you're doing things like audits on a periodic basis, there's a lot of value to it. Uh, I was on a, um, a webinar last week where a consultant talked about assisted reality, which is basically wearing RoboCop-like goggles where you can go to a site, um, take video, pictures, it's connected to GPS and GIS, um, it can connect you to an office so one person can be in the field and everybody else can be watching at home and it's a way to reduce costs and if you can't travel um, it's key there so i mean it's just one really neat example of um, using technology to um, to be efficient but also just to deal with the the situation we're in and um, i feel like if if i can learn zoom facetime webex uh, Microsoft Teams and every other technology platform that, that we can, all of us can learn new technologies pretty quickly. Um, okay, so, so technology is one. Um, you mentioned the second recommendation was developing a compliance plan, uh, contingency plan for COVID-19. What, what might that entail? So I, I think this is the actually the most important element of these. And, you know, admittedly, a lot of companies already have uh, closure plans for facilities, but those really relate to when you're closing a facility and you're going to be decommissioning, et cetera, which this is a whole different ballgame. Again, this is talking about a situation where uh, key resources aren't going to be available for a temporary period of time and often unknown period of time, but you're not closing the facility. So it's a unique situation. So what I would, and no one size, fits all for these types of plans. I think that companies should consider a couple key factors when they're looking at developing what their contingency plan might be for later 2020-21. And I think when you're going through to develop your plan, you should be looking at, you know, do you have key waste relationships or recycling arrangements that might be in a state where there's more restrictions or in a country where there's more restrictions? Last thing you want is to be having a stockpile of hazardous waste on your site, which, as you know, can be a, a bit of a uh, a bit of a no no as it relates to any particular law. Um, you know, mapping out your permit requirements, awareness, uh, your, your permit requirements and needs. I mean, I think that's a really important one. Of course, companies have these permits all the time, but generally they sit on a shelf. And there's obviously the monitoring aspects the facility folks are looking at on a daily basis, but pulling out those permits, looking at what might be triggered in the event of a closure from a notice perspective, from a compliance certainty perspective, perhaps you've got multiple facilities that 
are all uh, contributing, for instance, to a, a treatment plant, and that you're reliant on all of those discharges to, to that particular treatment plant for pur purposes of compliance. Well, if one shuts down, you've got an issue. So identifying those issues now, again, while you have the time to do it, is a, is a prudent idea. Um, you know, looking at what are your particular material compliance obligations that could be impacted by a closure. You know, I mentioned earlier changes in, you know, waste assumptions, for instance. Uh, if you've been relying on an exemption for years based upon particular uh, facility operations and now that's gone, you know, that's, that could be a big issue. Um, and, you know, the, the last ones here I, I think people should be considering are, you know, consider what your skeletal regulatory obligations are. So your facility is actually completely shutting down. So, you know, presumably you're saying, well, we have no compliance obligations. There's nothing to do, but there's security issues to consider. And then there's those compliance obligations that exist no matter what. And those are that are uh, prohibiting or preventing direct discharges to the environment. What happens if a spill occurs on your, your facility? Someone breaks in, knocks over a bunch of drums that are being lawfully stored. Those are the kind of issues you want to map out now again and should be included in your COVID-19 contingency plan. Um, and the last one I'll mention is staffing. And I know I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of, I saw a lot of our client contacts getting furloughed. You couldn't contact them. And immediately after them being furloughed, a significant compliance issue came up of which they needed to be contacted for. So mapping out who those individuals are and who the next person would be in the event of a situation like that all could go into these particular plans. Okay. I mean, it, I don't want to minimize the complexity of this because it clearly is complex and unprecedented, but what you're describing sort of sounds like a combination of some documents that a lot of facilities already have in place, like a spill uh, prevention and response uh, a compliance plan, closure obligation plan. Uh, it seems like some some of our clients may already have these things in place. Well, and that's absolutely right. And that's I think it's the way to look at this is it's not recreating the wheel, and that's not something I'd be recommending to do. You're looking for, I think, a, a quick resource that there are certain issues that may be covered in your pre-existing documents, and you don't redraft those. You just you simply reference those out so that when this situation occurs, you have an easy resource both to direct you out to your pre-existing resources and address those issues that are going to be unique to a particular restriction under uh, future um, COVID-19 related closure. Right. All right. So to go back, we've talked about adopting new technologies. Uh, you talked about closure contingency plans. Um, the third recommendation you mentioned was identifying changes to enforcement defense strategies. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure, and I, let me start by saying, you know, it, where enforcement goes from here is kind of anyone's guess. And I think that's true for both the regulated community as well as the regulators. Everyone's kind of struggling right now with how does enforcement look in the future if these restrictions or when these restrictions continue into, the, into uh, who knows when? Um, and there's disagreement right now, as I mentioned, between feds and states and private citizens groups, which are able to bring citizen suits when regulators do not act um, to enforce a particular uh, compliance requirement. So, 
where we are right now is again this complete hodgepodge of enforcement activity that either includes uh, discretion policies, non-enforcement, uh, more enforcement, or again a third a, a third option, which is the which is these citizens groups. So the the law that's the long way of ultimately saying there is absolutely still an enforcement risk because confusion will inherently beget enforcement. Right. And so given that risk um, of noncompliance during the COVID-19 um, era that we're in, what types of strategies do you recommend for uh, the regulated community to manage and to mitigate those risks? Well, I guess for components, I mean, the, the first is from a regulatory inspection standpoint. So when we're talking about an outside inspector coming into the facility or wanting to inspect the facility, um, you know, right now we've either heard discussions of agencies considering or agencies have in fact implemented inspection protocols where they're using things like Zoom, FaceTime, uh, or even drone inspections, or, or where those don't exist, they're doing a lot of their inspections online prior to actually being there in person. So that evolves, and I think the management of those inspections to some extent remains the same in that you want to limit the scope, obviously, of what is being inspected so that you can be prepared for the inspection. The new nuance for it, I think, if you're talking about these newer technologies or new approaches is, looking at each particular state is, you know, are there new notice requirements if you're using these? Is it potentially a little more invasive uh, than your uh, existing authority to do these inspections? So I'd encourage anyone uh, receiving an inspection notice using these two new types of technologies to be considering whether or not there's an authority issue into that particular state. And then turning to inspections from an internal perspective, so like an audit, um, you know, we've always recommended that audits be conducted through either internal or outside counsel for purposes of maintaining some privilege over the audit findings and investigation of noncompliance. And that just helps from a transparency standpoint to get to the bottom of the particular issue um, without fear that whatever you put in some email is going to show up in litigation down the road. So that recommendation holds true today, but I think it's actually enhanced in that now these inspections or audits potentially are being conducted entirely online. So you can just imagine some long email between folks that are in eight different locations talking about a particular issue, whether that results in an actual noncompliance finding or not, it's something you're going to want to control through that process as well. And I think that's where the, the management of the noncompliance comes into play. People say the darndest things in emails, don't they? <laughs> Unfortunately, we find that out in depositions normally. <laughs> right. um, so if noncompliance is identified in the current environment, what, what types of response strategies um, and changes um, might, might occur? Well, I'm going to give you a completely uh, lawyer answer here in that I think the strategies will either, well, will both change and not change. I mean, from a common, from a defense strategy, there are certain tenets that remain true regardless. You, you identify noncompliance, you correct the noncompliance correctly, and then you prevent recurrence of that issue uh, from occurring. And those best practices remain, well, the best practice. Um, I think the one nuance that I see under these kind of uncertain circumstances where 
agencies are struggling just as much as the regulated community is, more proactive engagement with the agencies to address a non-compliance issue. I generally see some thoughtful and um, helpful engagement to work through some of these newer issues and complexities with agencies, but I, I just will footnote that with um, the one statement that when you do reach out to address a, a particular issue, it needs to be proactive and it needs to be strategic um, and that you need to know what you are asking for, what the non-compliance issue is. Are you going to potentially qualify for a um, penalty reduction or no penalty due to a self-policing or self-disclosure policy with the agency. Knowing where you are with respect to that non-compliance is an important um, understanding before you reach out so you're not having to kind of backpedal or anything and you have a, a clear understanding of where things are going to go. And kind of hand in hand with that, which is like, I guess summarizes the entire approach altogether is it's, it's more important than ever right now for facilities to have sophisticated uh, and thoughtful EHS management systems. These are systems that are going to be able to be applied at, at that facility level from a practical perspective, and they're going to be able to be enforced from a facility and corporate level. Um, having that um, real-world application and command and control kind of structure is especially important. And when you're talking about defense of an enforcement action, having a client that has these kind of systems in play, it helps tremendously, even if non-compliance is found, to show that a system has been invested in to address any non-compliance that might exist. All right, Devin, thank you. Uh, a lot of good advice there, a lot to chew on uh, for our listeners as they contemplate changes in their own organizations to ensure ongoing compliance during this global pandemic. Um, it will certainly continue to create new challenges and opportunities for fresh ideas uh, like the ones you've talked about today. So I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us today um, to talk about these important issues. No problem. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It was uh, fun to do the, the inaugural episode here. Uh, if there's any questions that folks have, my contact information is available on Thompson Hines' website, www.thompsonhine.com. Thank you, Devin. Well, this concludes our inaugural, ep inaugural episode of Thompson Hines Environmental Laws podcast. We look forward to continuing to provide our listeners with current and practical insight into EHS laws and developments in the future. The Laws podcast episodes are available at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. We'll have additional new episodes soon, so be on the lookout. If you have a request regarding a topic you'd like to hear addressed in a future episode, please send an email with your request to me, Joel Eagle at joeleagle at thompsonhine.com or at, at, for any of our practice group members. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Law Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers and eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full service business law firm recognized for innovation and client services. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and align with their short and long-term strategic goals. One more legal disclaimer for you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thanks again for listening today. Be well, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.